Welcome to the Hey Soul Sister podcast, where Mel Histon will guide you through life's big questions and bring you one step closer to doing this crazy journey as best you can. Hey Soul Sisters, everyone has a story, but not all of us have the courage or the willingness to share their story and life learnings with the world. In this particular podcast episode, we're doing just that. I have the wonderful Susan Francis in here with me today. And Susan is the author of the book, The Love That Remains. And she's one woman with a very soulful story of searching for the love of her natural parents, finding the love of her life and discovering a world full of secrets. Hello, Susan, and thank you so much for coming in today. Hi, Mel. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. And so it's really interesting, sisters, anybody who are out there who is listening, I was in the Newcastle podcast station one day and um, I walked in and I was talking to Mel Sarge, producer, and Mel was sitting there and she was teary. And I said, Mel, what's what's up? What's going on with you? And she said, oh my goodness, I've just been listening to a podcast episode with the author Susan Francis and she said I her story has touched me so much Mel's a tough chicky Mel's probably <laughs> listened to this right now and I go she sat there shedding tears after um, listening to some of your readings on on the library podcast and then I think another time I was leaving the podcast station and Susan you were coming in and Mel said this is Susan who wrote that book I was telling you about and so I reached out to Susan because I'm a big believer that we all can learn from each other and the joy of life is sharing stories the ups and downs and Susan your life story has many ups and downs which again you have bravely shared in your book The Love That Remains. Thank you Mel. (laughs) (laughs) Every time someone does an introduction like that, I just think, gosh, are they talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> well, can we start, with, I suppose, with your journey of finding your adoptive parents? Just, I'll just quickly say a couple of years ago, I was reading on Facebook, um, there was a gentleman on there who was sharing his story via Facebook posts of discovering that he was adopted and then going searching for his natural parents and it was interesting that he then appeared to go into a whole depression around you know everything that unfolded from that Um, and I can imagine you know going on that journey of finding your adoptive parents and you've written about that in your book opens up a whole world of highs lows and pains do you mind sharing I suppose when it was that you decided that you wanted to go and find your adoptive parents I don't mind sharing it all We were talking a little bit before about voice and how important it is to give people voice or to give yourself a voice. I'd always known I was adopted and my parents who adopted me were wonderful people, very open about it and I would occasionally play with the idea of where I came from and who I was but they were very loving and it wasn't until I'd had my son Jono and my father was dying the man that adopted me and I was caught between these two places of having this little blonde four-year-old son full of energy and life and I loved him so much I still love him (laughs) and my father who I also loved who was dying from lung cancer and I'd returned home to look after him so he could die at home and I very clearly he he too had never known who his father was because his mother had had him in Melbourne she was unmarried came back to Grafton 
and she would work at the pub and he was farmed out to a family, a church family. So he would see her on occasion but felt terrible shame and a terrible sense of separateness and also not really knowing where he belonged. So there was nothing solid behind him. So as he was dying, literally, or not literally, but as he was dying in the days before he died, he said to me, it's very important that you go searching for where you come from. And I suppose it was a combination of him dying and I admired my father very much, even though he was bit of a tear away <laughs> <laughs> and unconventional in many ways. I admired him very much and so when he died I decided that was the time to go looking. Did that feel, I'm going to use this word, it might seem strange, but did that feel like a bit of a gift for you? And I say that because we hear stories of people who know they're adopted and they want to go on the journey to find their natural parents but their adoptive parents don't want them to do that you know so for him to say that to you that's almost like it that's the permission and the release that that's okay I feel like I was given a gift in two ways I feel like I was given a gift with the parents who brought me up you know it wasn't an easy household but I feel that my father and I could have been father and daughter in a blood family we were very similar and I really respected and admired his intelligence and the books that he read and his willingness to not just follow the rules so it was a gift with the parents that I was given to and it was a gift that he said that to me that he decided in the last weeks of his life that one of the things he really needed to tell me was this. Yeah. And so how did you then start that journey of finding your natural parents? Well, (laughs) (laughs) it's a very long story, so interrupt me. (laughs) Just tell me to be quiet when I need to be quiet. Because you reached out to your mother first, didn't you? Your natural mother first. So in 19, I think it was 92 or 93, Very soon after my father had passed away, they changed the legislation in New South Wales and you could finally access your original birth certificate. And since I'd had the birth certificate that was not my original birth certificate, I'd always felt a little bit resentful that I could not have access to information about me. I just couldn't understand. Yeah, it's like you have a right to know. It's your life. Exactly. And that, that always irritated me a little bit and then after dad died and you could access this information I was kind of like the first person in line and you know there on the original birth certificate is my mother's surname and there were so many extraordinary moments and it's very difficult to explain to people who aren't adopted what it's like when you're finally seeing these points of identification oh that's who she was that was her name and it took a long time to find out where she was because she'd married again and so the the process was long and involved and it was like a detective story and then I reached out to her with my mother who'd adopted me in the room at the same time and I rang her were you scared oh I was terrified (laughs) I was terrified and 
I'm really glad my mum was there and Jono was in the house somewhere, my yeah. son. I was really anxious to ring her, but I just didn't want to waste another second. Now yeah. that I had the telephone number, which had taken me quite a long time to get to access, I, I really wanted to do it now and find out who she was and find out who I was. And Did you have any expectations of what you thought, how that telephone conversation would unfold? I think you would expect that I would have had some kind of expectation. I just thought, thoughtlessly, that she would be happy to hear from me and she would be willing to give me all this information and... But she wasn't. Yeah, because you go, that's the fairy tale, that's the dream, is that you contact your, you know, for people, I'm guessing, that have been adopted, that they finally find their natural mother and they're like, oh, I've been searching for you my whole life as well, I guess. A little bit. It was more like... You know, you're you and I'm me and there was this thing between us that happened and I would like you to give me the information that I so badly want to determine who I am. And she would not. Wow. She would not. And she was furious with me and screamed at me down the phone and I ended up crying And I'm sitting on the chair crying and I remember mum taking the phone because we used to have phones. (laughs) Mum taking the phone and just repeating over and over again, Susan is a good girl, she's a good girl, she just wants to know where she comes from. And that really started burning a hole in my heart. That really started a lot of anger. I can imagine it's like, again, you ring up this woman that's your natural mother and for her to be like rejecting like I I can't imagine Mm. what that would feel like yeah and I don't think I was feeling I think I was just in this incredible emotional shock and it took me a while to sort out how I felt yeah and you know I've looked at a lot of studies since and I did totally the wrong thing by ringing her without allowing her to know that I was going to ring her so I got the feeling when I was talking to her on the phone that she was she blamed me that she was ashamed of me and I said recently to someone that I was she made me feel cheap because she said to me we have very good solicitors don't contact me again if it's money you're after you're not going to get it And so it was such a bundle of emotions and trying to tease out how I felt. And the overwhelming thing was anger that she would not give me this information that I really did think belonged to me. Yeah. It's your life, Mm. your history. Mm. But at the same time, she scared the hell out of me (laughs) (laughs) because she was so strong and so dominant and so aggressive. Yeah. So I wrote one letter to her address and I said my tone changed completely from asking politely sweetly or whatever it became this is my information and I want to know what it is you must give it to me and she sent me a letter back and gave me some wild ass kind of stuff that (laughs) didn't make a lot of sense yeah and and I was reading about that. It was about your father mm. and that he was a policeman that was working for the IRA. Yes. So he was, the story went, 
in the letter, which I could not believe to be true, that they'd run away from Melbourne in 1959. He was raising money for the OIRA and they travelled all around Australia. He was on the run from the police for something that he had done as a policeman or afterwards, I don't know. And they stopped in Newcastle, had me, kept travelling for another two years. And that was the story of my birth and how I came into the world. So they stopped in at Newcastle, she gave birth to you and left you? Yes, yes. And so what happened? So <laughs> <laughs> left you at the hospital? <laughs> left me at the hospital. <laughs> sorry, when I laugh, I tend to shout a bit. I'm sorry. And, and I and I am not laughing because that's funny. It's almost incredulous, you know, like, is that the right word? I mean, you're an author, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know if I, I think, use the wrong right word there. <laughs> I think we're laughing because it is funny in a very black way. You know, it's funny. It seems rid- it seems like ridiculous, ridiculous and unbelievable. And yeah, but no, that was. I don't think that was uncommon. And I should also say at this point that many women who gave their children up for adoption in the sixties had a much more difficult time. They might have wanted to have kept their babies, and their babies were taken from them. Yeah, and you know, I kind of thought that was going to be my story that she you know she was an unmarried woman and they took the baby but no I was I was freely left behind while they traveled Australia raising money for the IRA it's like like crazy movie (laughs) I know I know it is like a crazy movie and I had images in my head of what they must have been like and what they were doing and and she said in the letter that he was incredibly charming he was Irish he was good looking and that she, I think she must have been madly in love with him. Yeah. And some nights there was a lot of money, sometimes there was no money, and all the time he was raising money for the IRA. In Australia? In Australia, I know, weird as. Weird like, as. It's so weird. <laughs> That's why you could understand why you'd be like, is that a true story? Because yeah, who raises like, money for the Irish Republican Army in Australia? In Australia, I know, in the 60s. Yeah. So I just completely dismissed. Well, I did go looking for him because she gave me a few names. That, you know, I think his name might have been this or this or whatever. And I went looking for someone of that age. But I could never find him. And so at that time I gave it all up and gave yeah. it away and... That was about 93 or 94. So you decided, that's it, I'm just going to lay that to rest. Yeah. Yeah. So was that before or after you actually found your biological sister? So that was before. Yeah. So fast forward 20 years and... So this is in the early noughties? No, this is around about 2010. 10, yep. And my best friend had cancer and she'd been my friend since we'd been 10 living in New Lambton Heights, going to Lambton High School. And there was my other best friend, Di. So the three of us, very, very close. And Liz had been adopted. And so when she died, and my father had died, and my mother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I suddenly realised if I didn't do a final search and find out if that was the truth, I would never know, because perhaps they were dying or were dead and that's when I decided to to give it one more push and once again gave her no no notice rocked up in Brisbane at her address demanded answers she gave me the name of somebody very different 
to the name that was in the letter. We went looking, found him down towards Victoria, or found that he'd been in that town around the same time as my mother. Went down there. This was the most surreal part of the whole story. Yeah. So we went down there. There was an elderly lady who knew my mother when she was growing up and knew of the affair with this man, this other man, this new yeah. person who had come into the story. Yeah. Everybody knew. And everyone had known in the town that she had given a baby up for adoption. And so I was greeted as the baby. This was the baby that my mother had given up. And yeah. this was my father. And we're sitting there in the lounge room of this elderly lady's house. And I remember so clearly she said to me, I've been waiting for you for two years. And were, you, I, were you going, what? Yeah, it was just, <laughs> it was like the world stopped still. And we're just sitting in the lounge room and I'm just thinking, what? She said, I received your letter two years ago. I've been waiting to see you. I've got so much to tell you. And I said, I don't come, because she said from Victoria. I said, I don't come from Victoria. I was born in New South Wales. She said, but your name is Susan. I said, yes. And she said, she named my mother. She's your mother. I said, yes. So she's saying <laughs> that she received a letter from you, Susan, from Victoria. Yes. And you're like going, no, I'm from Newcastle. Yes. And she named my mother. Yeah. And, and I'm going, yes, this yeah. is my mother. I've got the birth certificate. So she hobbled out of the room. She said, I'm going to get the letter. And she came back and she, I remember her hands are shaking and she's got this handwritten letter in her hand. And it is from Susan in Victoria, whose mother is my mother, who was born 18 months before I was. So there are two Susans, both adopted out. So your mother had... <laughs> Two daughters. Yeah, laughing again. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm laughing because it seems it seems like b bizarre that so your biological, your natural mother gave birth to two daughters eighteen months apart and called them both Susan. Not quite. Okay. <laughs> that, that's what I'm thinking. That's what everybody's the thinking. Going, what? There's two Susans. So it's true. She had a daughter eighteen months before me, and she adopted both of us out. Yeah. But one was born in Victoria and one was born in New South Wales. She had named the girl in Victoria Susan. The woman who adopted me had called me Susan. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but in the moment. <laughs> in the moment you're going, we're both called Susan? I know. And it's that is, it really plays with your sense of who you are. Mm. And oh, I can imagine. Yeah, that there's a not, and it wasn't even that I had a sister. It was that. And she was a half-sister because it turned out that her father was different to my father. So first up, okay, who is my father? Yeah. This is not my father. This is that Susan's father. Wow. But also it felt like, and I said in the book, it's like that movie Sliding Doors. You feel like I'd gone in one direction, chosen to go through the doors or whatever, and Susan, the other Susan, had gone in the other direction. And I had these crazy thoughts like... Are we the same? Are we kind of like replicas of each other? Like how much are we alike? 
Is yeah. she living my life and am I living her? Like it was just a very, very strange experience. Oh, and again, I, I when I was laughing, I'm, I'm not laughing. You know, no, I know. I, I, I just, it just seems... <laughs> I like... laugh about it because when I tell it, I know... And I have to really concentrate <laughs> because it's a very complicated story. Yeah. And each bit adds to the next bit. And yep. so when I'm telling it, if I you know, because I'm mm. nearly 60, if I get a bit out of order or say the wrong thing, then it doesn't add up. So yeah, it was this series of strange, yeah, coincidences, events, a lot of work. Yeah. It took me a lot of time to go through all this, a lot of emotional, I'm not going to call it pain, but it was a lot of confusion. Turmoil? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Support a sister and leave us a review whenever you listen to the podcast. And so you ended up meeting Susan. I did. And Susan was lovely, but after we met, we didn't see each other again. And she didn't really want to continue a relationship, and nor she decided after meeting me, did she want to meet our mother because she'd never met her before. And did you kind of tell her about the experience that I you'd did. had as well? Yeah. 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 And she told me about her experience and yeah. her adoption had been quite different to mine. There was piles of paperwork talking about our mother and our grandmother and the father whereas with my adoption there was no No paperwork paperwork, whatsoever and I totally respect her decision and I still respect her decision because she had the grace to meet with me and to share her story and really it's the chase of knowledge it's the chase of information so it wasn't for you it wasn't a chase I want to have a close relationship I just need I just want to know who I am and where I come from that's exactly right yeah so I'm not chasing a sister or chasing a mother or or any of that I'm just chasing information that I think belongs to me yeah in your it's very complicated isn't it (laughs) but I go it's I suppose it's life isn't it yeah it is it's very much life it's yeah in all its shades yeah yeah absolutely and again we're all blessed that you're so willing to share that with all of us thank you yeah Mm. absolutely because there will be people reading your book maybe listening to this podcast or other interviews that you've done that may have been in a similar situation or you know and that will give them some sense of they're not alone no no and I don't say that chasing information for who you are is for everyone some people aren't as obsessed as I was about it but for me it was everything And, you know, we talked earlier about a voice, giving yourself a voice. And for me, until I knew my background and knew the story, then I didn't have a voice almost, you know, which is the reason I wrote the book, to write myself onto the page, to say, this is me, all that information that people kept from me for such a long time. This is me. Yeah. So... You went on to search for your father, but in the Mm. meantime, you found the love of your life. I did. I found beautiful Wayne. (laughs) Tell us how you met Wayne. I met him online. It was very kind of stereotypical and not terribly exciting. But he was a gold miner. I was teaching out in the Central West near Dubbo. And you were in your early 50s. I was. I was. Look, all the dates get confused, but I think I was around 53 or 54. Yeah. So not very long ago. Yeah. And 
teaching was hard and I'd left one very bad relationship and he'd come over from the west and he was mining in orange and really both of us were just looking he would say I was just looking for a woman to take out to dinner but I knew as soon as he walked through the gate that he was different and special and gorgeous (laughs) (laughs) And, and I just you know I would look at him and think you know as our relationship unfolded and he would tell me all the time believe it or not he would tell me all the time how beautiful I was, how he loved me, and yeah. he just bolstered yeah. my confidence and my sense of who I was. And it felt like I was being loved unconditionally. Someone looked at my funny face or my fat belly or my whatever was wrong with me <laughs> and still loved me and still found me beautiful and would tell me all the time you know, how he felt about me and... That's because he saw the real you. Yeah, now I'm going to get all teary. I haven't (laughs) talked about it for a while. He was a beautiful man. Yeah. Do you know what? It's so wonderful that you met this beautiful man. Because some people go and go their entire life Mm. and they never meet that beautiful soul that becomes the love of their life. No, I was really lucky. Really lucky. And... Blessed, you know. I don't like using that word a lot, but I feel, I feel that because he came into my life and we went through everything that we went through, and afterwards what happened, I feel like I'm the person I am today, without any need to get into a relationship again. Whereas once upon a time, it was about relationships and using them to anchor myself and find my sense of self. These days, I really find myself good enough. <laughs> and part of that is because of him yeah. and everything that we went through. I don't know you really at all, but I, you're amazing. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Do you know, it took me half an hour to put my ankle boots on this morning. <laughs> they don't tell you as you get older that it gets really hard. Yeah. Sorry, I'm shouting again. I get that high pitch in my voice and it's awful. I'm sorry. No, no, don't apologise. It's, yeah, no. So you meet Wayne, he's your love of your life, and it sounds like you're two, like the the two parts of a whole. Yeah, we were, and that is part of the way I, I wrote the book because I told him the story of Aristophanes' theory of love. And this story still has so many points that I relate to. So Aristophanes' theory of love is that we are two bodies back to back and we have two heads, four arms, four legs and we're so happy that we cartwheel around the world without any kind of restraint. We're just cartwheeling around the world together, joined as one, which is how I saw Wayne and I when we went to Spain. We'd given everything up. There was just he and I, and we're cartwheeling around the world as happy as happy can be. And then the story goes, the myth, because you're so happy, the gods come down and they separate the two of you apart. And then for the rest of your life, you're searching for that soulmate or for that love that was taken away from you. So what comes first is it? You know, I don't know what comes first. It's almost a circular story. But 
for me, yes, we were we were so flippant in our happiness and I mean we gave everything away, we sold everything, we gave up our jobs. It wasn't that we just were had heaps of money and went to Spain. That isn't what happened. We we wiped out everything to go to Spain to be together to have this grand adventure. He was nearly 60, I was by this time 55, 56. Give up everything, we're together. We're going to go to Spain and we're going to live, he said, before we die. We're going to live. And that's what we were doing. Let's get soulful on social media. Search the Sister Code Facebook page and follow us on Instagram. So how long were you in Spain together for? We were there six months. Yeah. So we'd established this little flat underneath the Alhambra fortress. Like just stunning. There were no cars. You had to walk everywhere. Yep. So you set up a, a home there? Yeah, we set up a home. We had a 12-month lease yep. in this little flat. And what did your days look like in Spain together? Our days were... <laughs> so to start with, our days were freezing. It was snowing when we got there in January, believe it or not, in Spain. That is funny because I always yeah. think of Spain as being sunshine I know, and flowers. I know, and but we ride under Granada is under the or on the slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains and there are snow fields above us. So to start with, it's freezing cold and it's snowing and we're trotting through the streets to go to our Spanish lessons and, you know, there are no cars, so you're on up and down because Granada kind of is like a V. The river runs through the bottom and then up either side. We're on one side and our Spanish classes were on the other side. So, you know, you'd get up and you'd... We got very fit very fast. The rest of our day, so we'd finish classes at maybe 11 or 12 and we'd sit in the sun by that time eating tapas and drinking alcohol and watching the world go by. And it was just glorious. It could not have been. It was perfect. It was, I say in the book, it was the most perfect time in my whole life. Wow. Mm. That's beautiful. Sell everything and go on an adventure. Yeah. And we didn't know where we would go when that finished. But, yeah, it was stunning. Yeah. Yeah. What's your fondest memory in Spain? No one's ever asked me that before. I think, honestly, just walking through the streets, hand in hand, in a foreign place, surrounded by a language that we were trying to learn, new experiences coming to us all the time. Yeah. You know, I would be looking around all the time. That's what I like, just walking the streets. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so after six months together in Spain, what happened next? So, believe it or not, sitting in squares and drinking wine mm. sometimes begins to feel a little bit, oh, we need to do something different. We need to not squander this time. And so Wayne's 60th birthday was coming up and we decided to drive because he really missed driving, hire a car, drive up into France and then make our way back around the top of Spain into Portugal for his birthday because he'd always wanted to see Portugal and so he hired the car and we drove up to the south of France and you know beautiful as you can imagine drove around the top of Spain watching all the people walking the Camino and 
down into Portugal where we celebrated his 60th birthday in a little town called Porto, which yep. gorgeous town. And then we travelled down to Lisbon. Yeah. And a week after his 60th birthday, he... Um, he passed away unexpectedly. Yeah, and so I think I recall reading in the book that you kind of came in in the morning, is that right? And you had you found him and he was not well. Yeah, so he would always like to sleep in because he was a minor. And <laughs> the times, you know, he would always be doing night shift. But for me, I loved to get up. I had to get up and have a coffee. And I was working on the book, which was not the book it turned out to be. And I just heard him in the bedroom and it was a noise that just was not familiar. It wasn't a noise he would normally make. And there was an urgency to it and a fear to it. And he was not afraid of anything. And because he was a, physically, he was so big and his spirit was really big. And I just raced in and he was choking and his face was purple and I knew something was really really wrong and I raced out into the lounge room and I because all I could think of doing was getting help I didn't think that I could manage this situation I could tell that it was serious enough that we were going to need an ambulance and just nothing worked. The phones weren't on. Oh, God. His phone, the password, I'd never learnt the password because we were always together. So what did it matter? Yeah. You know, but I couldn't get into his phone and my phone was not charged. And also my phone didn't have the SIM card that we needed in that country. We my SIM card worked in some countries in Europe and his SIM card worked in other countries and one of those countries was Portugal. So I was like panicked. I just couldn't figure out how to help him. And for some reason I opened the computer desperately trying to find the phone number because I didn't even know what the phone number was wow. for emergency. And couldn't find the phone number. Everything was written in Portuguese and it wouldn't have mattered anyway. So then I race across the hallway because it's not a hotel, it's apartments and the woman there knocking on the door, she didn't answer. I'm racing up and down the hallway, we're on the fourth floor and I just didn't know what to do and then I heard her open and I raced down and she couldn't understand me and her phone didn't work and nothing was working and meanwhile Wayne's in that bedroom and Somewhere in between I go back in and he has passed out and I try to do mouth to mouth and I've told this detail before. So his mouth, he had a very, very big mouth and I have a small mouth and I could not, my mouth wasn't big enough to go over his mouth to give him mouth to mouth and I didn't even think about CPR. I just, Anyway, so then I raced down the four flights of stairs and found a stranger and the stranger ended up calling the ambulance and then I raced back up again and desperately trying to find a pulse and I couldn't find a pulse and I honestly didn't know if he died or if he was still alive. And then the ambulance turned up about 
I don't know, maybe 25 minutes later. And there we are. Then another ambulance turned up, then the doctors turned up, then the police turned up. And so they couldn't revive him. Oh, Susan. I can't imagine. That's worst nightmare stuff. It is. (laughs) It is. It was terrible. Yeah. And so then, of course, you have to, what do you do? You're in a foreign country and you're like... Somehow I managed to ring my son. And I don't know how, whether somebody let me phone or whatever. But I managed to get through to Jono, who was in Sydney. And he rang the consulate in Canberra. And they sent, so around three or four hours after Wayne died, they sent the Australian consulate official around to the flat. And this flat is still with Wayne on the floor, dead and filled with all these people in uniform. And she was the one, thank God, who talked to them all and convinced them that this wasn't a crime situation. And finally, they removed Wayne's body and she was the one who helped me find the funeral director. My son arrived two or three days later. Together, we made the decision to cremate Wayne And that was also what the consulate official and what the funeral director had advised. So Jono and I went to a service. We were the only ones there because, you know, who else is going to be there? Yeah. And Wayne was cremated. And then we took the ashes and Jono got the hire car and drove us back to Granada. Yeah. Wow. And so when you got back to Australia... Do you had to go and tell his family? No, I told his father had passed away many years previously, so it was his mum and a few of his brothers and sisters because they're scattered and the dynamics are a little bit unconventional. So I had actually rung his brother from Portugal and asked his brother to tell his mother because the reception was really really bad coming in and out and I just didn't want to be on the phone telling her news like that yeah absolutely in case cut out at the wrong spot or something like that now we had a when I came home which is about a month later we had a funeral service yeah for him when all his friends and family came yeah and so how do you then go on with life I mean you found the love of your life and Go and have this amazing time together. It was really hard. Yeah. And I've always considered myself a very resilient person. I had family and friends, thank God, yeah. because I had no job. I had no money because all the money You'd was... You'd sold everything to go to Spain. sold everything. I didn't even have a house. So, you know, at 55, my brother, God bless him, said you can sleep in our spare room. So I'm sleeping in his teenage son's room at 55. And that was just, you know, the juxtaposition between where I'd been and where I was was extraordinary. I've never felt so without. It'd be like in a spin as well, like, because all of that happens. No, by then I was, by then I was fully realising what had happened all the time when I was in Spain and I was leaving, all that was spin, spin, spin. 
But by the time I reached Pete's house, which is like August or September, and Wayne died in June, by that time I'm depressed, yeah, anxious, heart racing all the time, yeah, full realization that I had nothing. I did not like I didn't have my husband, and then after that, so much. And how do I start my life again? Where do I start my life again? Like, what is my life? Who am I? Yeah. You then, after coming back to Australia, discovered another secret, a big secret about the love of your life. I did. Tell us about that. (laughs) First off, I just want to say, how did I get all that going again from the depth of despair? When I felt I had nothing, I really remember literally looking around and thinking to myself, what else do I love besides Wayne? What else do I love besides being a teacher or traveling? Or What is it that I love? I love to write. And it was that determination to write the story that got me through and got me going again. And so life progressed in 2017. I'd bought a house here in Mayfield because all the money had been sorted out. I was writing, the book was going well, I was tutoring. And then I remembered something that had happened in Portugal. And I said to Wayne's mum, what was that about? What did that mean? And that's when she told me what had happened in New Guinea. And that's when I knew I had to go to New Guinea and find out what the truth was. (laughs) Once again, another quest to know the knowledge. Yep. Because unless you know, you can't be yourself and you can't live your life. Yeah. And so what did you find in Papua New Guinea? So I found the truth about what had happened that night. Yep. And I'm not going to say what I found, yep. just that it was a terrible secret. And I needed to know that the man that I loved was the man that I loved. Yeah. And thankfully, I found something that I believed and even though it took a while to put those two men together, the man that I loved and what had happened in New Guinea, eventually it made a lot of sense to me. And what it made me understand, people actually keep secrets from a sense of vulnerability. Yeah. So lovely, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) What have been the key things that you've learnt about life? And I'm going to say that's one of them. People keep secrets from a place of vulnerability. Yes. And people want to be loved and they're afraid that they're not good enough to be loved and that's why they keep secrets or they keep part of themselves hidden away. Um, That's similar, but I think that's important. We're all so anxious to have someone to see us for who we are, to really see us. And if that person isn't in the world, are we still seen? Do we still exist? And for a long time, I didn't think I did exist after Wayne died. I thought, if Wayne can't see me, am I really here? If I haven't got someone seeing me for who I am and seeing me, then maybe I don't matter anymore. But I've learned since Wayne died and, and experiencing everything that I do matter. I do matter to I'm so myself. Glad you just, I'm glad you found that. <laughs> I'm really glad you found that. I think after, like I knew I mattered before Wayne, but after somebody dies who you you link yourself so closely to, your dreams and your everyday life, 
I really thought, gosh, if he's not around anymore, who am I relevant to? You know, my biggest fear was I would be sat on the Christmas table with the kids while the adults who had relationships and jobs and Mm. they would be up the other end. So did I matter anymore? And I learned that I'm very relevant and it's okay to be on my own. Yeah. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your very complex (laughs) life story, the ups and downs and rounds and rounds and love and secrets and life and joy and pain. Now, how can people find your book? The Uh, Love That Remains, because I think you all need to get that book and find (laughs) out what happened. What did Susan not tell us? (laughs) They can find The Love That Remains at Booktopia. Yep. At McLean's in Newcastle. In fact, any good independent bookstore. It's an Alan and Unwin book. It's an Alan and Unwin book published in February this year. You can even go to the Alan and Unwin site and order it from there. But McLean's and Booktopia and... Yeah, any bookshop, really. You're amazing. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Oh, I appreciate you coming in and being so candid with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hey Soul Sister with Mel Histon. What would help you on your crazy life journey? Email melissa at thesistercode.com.